We are in Acts, and Luke's purpose in writing both Luke and Acts is to reveal God's unfolding plan carried out, first of all, in Luke by Jesus Christ as Messiah. As He walked the earth, the Holy Spirit working through Him, calling the elect to Him. And then that just continues in Acts with it now going through His apostles and the early church. But it starts with Jesus. And you know, I admit before I went to Israel, I kind of grew up knowing Jesus was God and knowing He was man. But in His God part, I just always made the assumption that Jesus was omnipotent, omniscient while He walked the earth. But as I began to go to Israel and I began to really reflect upon the text and look at the text, I realized there were things in the text that would indicate that that wasn't always true. Jesus, He was God in nature, but He set aside His powers when He came to earth. Otherwise, why would it say He grew in stature and wisdom? How would He need to grow in wisdom if He was all-wise and all-knowing? Right? And so when He was on the earth, Jesus embodied what it meant to be yielded to the Spirit. He showed us what a Spirit-filled person looked like. And, And that doesn't mean somebody who walks around with their hands up all the time. It doesn't mean somebody who's who's speaking unintelligible language all the time like some people would have you believe. What it meant was he was yielded to the authority and the Word of God wherever he went. That's what it means to be filled in the Spirit. To be yielded to the authority and the Word of God. And he was. He embodied that and he grew in that as he continued. Jesus embodied that like nobody. Nobody was like Him. He was fully devoted to God. Now the difference between Jesus and the church is the church is made up of us. And back then it was made up of people like us. Because everybody other than Jesus does not have the capability to be 100% yielded to God 24-7, 365 for their life. We don't. We, we, we battle like Paul says. We things we want to do, we don't do the things we don't want to do. But we're constantly being conformed to that image of Christ to where we're growing in maturity to being yielded. And Luke lays out the birth of the church in, in Acts and then the life of the church and really the ministry of the church. And what we're going to see today is really the beginning of personal ministry in Peter's life and the apostles' life. Because Peter stood up, last week we looked at, he stood up and he proclaimed in a very public way the gospel of Messiah. But now he's going to interact with somebody in a personal level. I think that's one thing missing from our churches. And by churches, I mean, you know, the, the local congregation. That a lot of times our under-shepherds proclaim, but they don't personally minister. But that was Jesus. That's not what Jesus did. He proclaimed and personally ministered, and now we're seeing Peter do that. Why? Because he wanted to be like his rabbi. That's what a good disciple did. He wanted to be like his rabbi. And so, and we're going to see in this passage today, Peter almost is identical to what Jesus did in the temple. 
Because back in John chapter 5, you know what Jesus did? He walked up to a man who was lame, and he said, you want to be healed? The guy didn't do anything to indicate he wanted to be healed other than he was there where people lay to be healed. But why would Jesus ask him that back in John 5? The guy didn't ask Jesus to be healed. He didn't look to Jesus to be healed. He probably was hoping to get some money from him just like this guy in Acts chapter 3. But when Luke wrote Acts, he wrote it and divided it into six sections and every section finished with this little phrase, either the word increased or the church increased. And they flip-flop those throughout the different sections so that the church and the word were seen as simultaneous or, or they, they were the same thing, synonymous. And, and it just meant as the word increased, the church increased. As the church increased, the word began to increase and go out. And so last week, after Peter's great message in Acts 2, where he proclaims the supernatural life of Christ, the sacrificial death of Christ, the uh, sovereign resurrection of Christ, and then the spirit-giving ascension of Christ, there was a saving invitation, and 3,000 people came in. And we saw last week how the church functioned but when led by the Spirit. We saw the first thing in its attention it gave to what? Biblical doctrine. Biblical doctrine to the apostles' teaching. Remember, they didn't have the New Testament letters. So the apostles were teaching them what the Scriptures said about Messiah, their Old Testament Scriptures, the Torah, the Tanakh, the history books, the wisdom books, all those things about Messiah. So that's what they were teaching. And that was a primary part of what they gathered for every week. But also fellowship. Remember that word koinonia, the common shared community that really defined that early church. We saw that. That's what they gave attention to. And then he defines what that community looked like, that koinonia. It was what? Fellowship, having breaking bread together, having a meal together, and then the Lord's Supper, obviously, is part of that. They would finish that time with the Lord's Supper, remembering and proclaiming His death, because every time they celebrated communion, they proclaimed His death and resurrection was for them. That was why they did it. It was one of the sacraments. But also, it says, by prayers. That defined their koinonia as well. And we don't do a very good job in that area as men, do we? It's very uncomfortable for us to get together as men and really pray. In fact, if you say, hey, we're going to have a conference and we're going to invite, uh, let's just say, we're going to invite John MacArthur to come. He's going to come and he's going to teach on prayer. I guarantee you we would have no problem filling any church in this city if that was going to happen. But if we said to the same group of people, hey, we're going to get together and we're going to pray that God does a mighty work in this city, we would have probably less than 5% of the same people come because we're more geared to go learn than we're geared to actually participate. And it's not about being a spectator. That's what he's saying last week. We looked at that. It's about being a part of the community. We all have a part to play. doesn't matter if you pray eloquently or if you pray small phrases. If you pray, you are interceding for people on their behalf to the Most High God. And, and we all share in one spirit. That's what he said last week. But it also said last week, not only in their function were they, were they experiencing that koinonia, but they also had this awe, this common awe 
over God, not over worship music, not over great teaching, but it was over God and what God had done for them and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. There was this awe that characterized them. And there was also this common generosity that they saw a need, that this, this, this compassion that was in them. We saw that was an attitude they had. And then we also saw the actions where they went witnessing. They would go to the temple. Why? Because there were lost people in the temple. People who had not yet come to Messiah. So they were going to the temple. They were being generous. And they were praising God. That was what made up the early church's actions, attitude, and attention. We saw that last week. This week, like I said, we're in Acts chapter 3. And as we look at this week, I want to ask you this. What now? So you got 3,000 people there. They're growing. They're, they're, they're one. And God says, okay, now I'm going to show people that these are my people. I mean, we already had it at Pentecost where the signs came down, right? You had tongues of fire. You had the sound of the whirling wind. Everybody speaking in tongues, which was a sign. Remember, that was a sign of judgment on the Jewish people when they spoke in those tongues. But now, we're going to see supernatural signs to validate the apostles as true teachers of the Word. You remember what Nicodemus said over in John chapter 3? We know you come from God because of what? The works, right? Yes. What you're doing validates that you are coming from God. Because if you remember, they only had the Old Testament. That what we have to explain how Messiah was Jesus didn't get compilated. It was circulated, you know, uh, 50, 60 A.D. But it really didn't get put into a form where it was circulated widely as one unit till what? About 300 A.D. maybe? Right around that time frame. So how did God validate His people that were speaking words about Messiah? He did it with signs and miracles. And do you know that nowhere in the whole book of Acts, which is the history of the church, right? Going from Jerusalem to Rome, nowhere does a miracle happen without an apostle being there. Not believers, but apostles. You would think by some of the books that have been put out today, some television programs that have been put out today and what people are preaching today, that we're seeing miracles on a, on a scale in our world like what's going on back then. And miracles were rare in Acts other than early on. No healings referred to in any New Testament church. No miraculous healings. None. You go back and you read the early church fathers. Healing was not a gift for believers. It was a sign for unbelievers. Now, did God heal people sometimes? Uh, when, I mean, before Acts? Of course He did. People came up to Him and said, would you heal my daughter? Would you heal my son? 
the centurion sent a guy to heal. And what did he say? I haven't seen this kind of faith in all Israel. But those were in the Gospels. Remember he sent out 70 people? They all could heal people? But why? Messiah was there. That was validating their message that they were messengers from God. But it was a sign for unbelievers to point of Jesus. In fact, Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. It was always to authenticate his messengers. Do you remember back in Exodus chapter 4? In Exodus 4, when Moses was told to go to, uh, to Egypt, and he goes, who, who am I to say sent me? I mean, how, how, how are they going to know I'm from you? And he said, Moses, take that staff and throw it down. It was a sign. Do you know what was interesting about that particular sign? It was counterfeited by Satan. And not only that one, there were several that Moses did that were miraculous. I mean, listen guys, if I stood up here with a staff and threw it down and it became a cobra or a snake, you would freak out. I mean, you, you would be like, what in the heck? I mean, that is pretty miraculous, right? But the magicians did it too. Satan can counterfeit signs. And he does. And will mislead even some of the elect. But God uses those signs and miracles as a way to authenticate His messengers. And before we had the completed canon, that was how God authenticated the people that He spoke through as being true teachers. But for us, you know how to tell if we're telling what God says? You can take the New Testament and go back and look, does it match up with the Old Testament? It's all here. It's all here that you don't need a miracle to validate. This is a miracle. I mean, do you realize what took place for you to have this? To be able to hear? To know? So, this particular text is pretty much just a narrative in Acts chapter 3 of, of Peter and John going to the temple and what happens. But keep in mind, the same thing kind of happened back in John chapter 5. In John 5, Jesus goes to the temple and he heals a guy. 38 years lame. And any good disciple wants to be like his rabbi and but Peter, I don't think, went to the temple this day knowing this was going to happen. I think it was God's spontaneous divine opportunity for Peter and John. But it was sovereign what God did. The guy didn't even ask to be healed. Which goes counter to what people who are in what I would call the, the, the movement that tries to teach people healing, claims that they have gifts of healing, and they tell people, oh, you're not being healed because you don't have enough faith. That's what they say. And so, as we read this text, we're going to see that God authenticates His Word about Messiah, first of all, with His people. God authenticates His Word with His people in community. Peter and John go together. It wasn't just Peter. They were together because we are ministers 
together. And they were in community. Second, he authenticates his word with his power. That means his spirit is present in his power being demonstrated. And you see it in his sovereign timing. And by the way, it's his resources, it's not ours. Peter didn't have the capacity to do that. True. But God did. And, and, and he makes an interesting statement there that we're going to look at. And then third, he authenticates his word about Messiah for his glory. Anytime a miracle happens that glorifies a man, you can rest assured it ain't coming from God. And I would even go so far as to say that, that God doesn't give a gift of a miracle to glorify the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's function is to point to Jesus. And in doing that, He glorifies the Father. So when we glorify the Holy Spirit, or we call it the Spirit, but really a lot of times what you hear people doing is glorifying the acts of the gifts themselves. And we're going to see what Jesus Himself said about that. So open your Bibles. If you don't have one, there's one up here. Go to Acts chapter 3. Let's read this text. Come back and look at these. It's pretty straightforward, but some just some quick observations. Starting in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Now seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give it to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognizing him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. May God bless His Word. God authenticates His Word about Messiah with His people. Peter and John, the dynamic duo. This is not the first time they went out together. They went out together back in Luke. Remember, Jesus said, hey, I want you guys to go prepare for Passover. He sent Peter and John. When they ran to the tomb, they were told that Jesus had resurrected over in John 20. Who was it who went? Peter and John. They were not unfamiliar with each other. They grew up together in Bethsaida. They were fishermen. Their their parents fished together. And they grew up together. And God called them in a ministry together and they ministered together in community. 
not in isolation. That's why, and guys, I'm going to tell you, I've seen in ministry over 26 years at least half a dozen guys who were Lone Rangers. They had nobody with them. And that's dangerous, first of all. And it's really not biblical. We're supposed to minister in community together with each other. And Brad, you and I talked a lot just about as we were doing radio, I mean like the the fellowship and the richness of doing that together, right? I mean, doing ministry together is the way God made us in community. His people. He authenticates His message and His teachers in community. And Peter and John were part of that. And, you know, even in Acts 8, we're going to see later when the Samaritans supposedly had this baptism, not the baptism of the Spirit, but they came to the realization that Messiah had come. Peter and John go together to make sure. It's all right, why? Because they were apostles now together. They were His people. And when they went, you know who they represented? They represented Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth. Flip over to Luke 10 real quick. Luke 10, verse 16. Jesus had sent out the 72. They came back. They were pretty excited about all the stuff that had been going on. But notice in verse 13 real quick. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. So miracles were happening in these cities by the hands of these people, the 72 that went out. In verse 16 it says, the one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. The one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Go down to verse um, 20. They came back and they were talking about how awesome all these things were they got to do. Man, we were doing this, we were doing that. Demons were fleeing. It was we casting out. It was incredible. And this is what Jesus said. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Amen. In other words, he says, don't get caught up in all these things that you are doing. Be rejoiceful or be joyful that your names are written in the book of life, that you have salvation. That's what's important. Not what you're doing as an instrument of mine representing me. That's why when you flip on the TV and you see these people who are teaching bad theology, claiming to raise people from the dead. One guy actually claimed he raised somebody who had been dead 12 hours. No documentation of that anywhere. And and asking for people to send money. That same guy in a book writes that this person did not receive healing because... They didn't have enough faith. And that's absurd. It's bad theology. The people that teach that garbage always have bad theology. They take verses out of context. And so God is authenticating His people, His Word through His people. And that's what He's doing there. But He doesn't only authenticate His Word about Messiah through His people, but He does it with His power. Second part of verse 1 it says in the ninth hour, that was the hour of prayer. That was, that was the time, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, right after the evening sacrifice, that people would normally go to the temple. 
And guess what was going on this day when they went down there? This guy was being carried in at exactly the time that Peter and John were going to the temple. If you go a few chapters later, maybe the next chapter, you see how long that guy had been lame. How long? 40 years. Congenital birth defect for 40 years. The people recognized who the guy was, so this was not something that didn't happen regularly. So you know what occurred to me? Is as this guy was at the temple just probably a year earlier, maybe two years earlier, maybe even that year, who walked by him and didn't heal him? Jesus. Yeah. Think about that. Jesus did not heal everybody he encountered that was sick or hurting. He healed a lot of people in some areas and maybe in some villages he healed everybody that was sick. But he did not heal everybody that he probably walked by that was sick. Because this guy, it says, was daily laid there. And for 40 years he had been like that. And he never went into the temple. You know why? He couldn't go into the temple because he was unclean. And I wonder if when Jesus passed by that guy, if the disciples wondered why. Maybe they didn't give it a thought. Maybe they were too busy worried about their own position in the kingdom. Yeah. But this day it was different because they're going in. He's coming in. <laughs> and it was at the beautiful gate. You know where that is? That's a, it's called the Nicanor Gate. It's a big, huge 75-foot by 60-foot gate made out of Corinthian brass covered in gold plate took 20 men to open it and close it. It's huge. But it was beautiful, called the beautiful gate. And guess what? It was where people would have to go in. And when people would go in to the temple, they were going in to be where? Near God. And people would feel this necessity to help poor people if they were there. Why? Because if you've got to earn your way to God, you want to make sure, especially if it says in Leviticus, leave your fields cut. You hadn't left your field cut. Oh no, I didn't take care of them there. So I better help out these people. So the beggars knew that. So that's where they hung out. They hung out where the people were that would want to make their conscience feel better by giving to people. It was a beautiful gate. But notice in verse 4, or verse 3, he says, seeing Peter and John about to go in, he asked to receive alms. He didn't ask them for healing. Alms is money. He wanted, he wanted money. And Peter said, I don't have any gold or silver. Guys, that right there, that statement by Peter right there is like a nuclear bomb to the prosperity gospel. It just completely obliterates the prosperity gospel. Peter says, I don't have silver and gold. That's not about, that's not what we're about. He didn't ask for healing. He wanted money. And Peter says, I don't have money. But notice also that it says Peter gazed at him and he said, listen, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. Now, did the guy ask to be healed? 
Did he have faith to be healed? Doesn't say anything about those things. That is like a nuclear bomb to the faith healers of today. To the people who say, if you just have more faith, you can be healed. Because they put faith in faith. They don't put faith in Messiah. And that's the problem. But it wasn't just his sovereign timing and his power to bring people's lives together in a divine appointment. It was also his resources, his strength, his healing, not ours. And notice what people, Peter said, I don't have this, but I do have this. And, and it, I was looking at that and I just thought, God's not calling us to give what we don't have, guys. He's calling you to give what you have. And I think of Dallas Jenkins, who's the director and writer for the Chosen series. And he was going through a difficult time. And somebody had challenged him with this, and he kind of has kept this. And it's a really good thought. He was thinking about the story of the fish and the feeding of the 5,000, the boy with the fish and the loaves. And he said, you know, it's not our job to feed the people. It's just our job to bring the fish. Because the boy brought what he had and Jesus fed the people with it. Sometimes we think we got to feed the people in ministry. I'm just telling you, we do. We make that jump. Uh, how are we going to do this? Because we become so pragmatic. But it's not our job to feed the people. It's only our job to provide the fish, the bread. He said, what I have... In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, again, calling out the name that was on the cross by His authority, by His power, by His will. He says, get up. He takes him by the hand, which that was risky. I'm going to tell you, that's risky because when he reached down, you know, he didn't know. He hoped he had faith to do that, but he grabbed him. And it says... And Luke is very specific here. He uses something that's only said right here in all the New Testament. It says that immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And, and what that is is a creative miracle at that moment. Think about that. For 40 years, this guy never took a step. In twinkling of an eye. Yeah. His muscles were taut. He had never been taught how to walk. But at that moment, he not only walked, he leaped. He leaped up and began to walk and entered the temple. Guys, he went into the temple for the first time in his entire life. And he entered the temple with them. Who else went in there? Peter and John went in there. They were still going to the temple, guys. It took 40 years on the scene. Remember, Hebrews hadn't been written yet, and it took 40 years. God gave a transition period. There were a lot of Jewish believers who continued to go to the temple and teach probably in the court of the Gentiles or on the southern steps there. And they would pray because that's what their habits were. They would pray in the morning, they would pray at noon, and they would pray in the afternoon. And it says, and all the people saw him walking and praising God. They saw it. They witnessed this incredible sign and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate asking for alms. And it says they were filled with wonder and amazement. They were, they were a witness. 
I mean, the man was a witness of Peter, and Peter and John were a witness of the Most High God and Messiah come. You know why? Because Luke is writing this, twice he uses the word leap here in this little text about this. He connects the fact that in John 5, Jesus healed a lame man. They knew disciples wanted to be like the rabbi. And you could tell a disciple because he emulated his rabbi. He looked just like him. Now flip back to Isaiah 35 real quick. Isaiah 35 verse 4. Say to those who have anxious hearts, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance with the recompense of God and He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall what? The lame man leap like a deer and and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Isn't that interesting? That's a a prophecy of Messiah. And guess what? It's not Jesus that did it. It's His Apostle that did it. Remember what we read just last week? Many wonders and signs being done through the Apostles. You'll see that again and again. Through the Apostles. Through the Apostles. It wasn't the 3,000 doing all this work of signs. And so why do so many people today get caught up in this? Well, I think because there's this desire on some of their parts to give hope to people. And I I think Satan tries to counterfeit some things. But I had Costi Hen on. Costi Hen is Benny Hen's nephew. He's out in California. Costi Hen was a part of that whole deal for a long time. And I had him on the radio what, three years ago, Brad? And he talked, now he's got a book out, but he talks about how they screened who came up for healing. That ought to be a flag for people. Oh, we can't do you. Oh, you got back pain? Yeah, we can take that because nobody can verify that. When I was in Africa, I saw a pastor paying people over there after a service and this, we, we just happened to be invited. Our host took us to this service. They were doing a lot of this stuff. You had somebody foaming at the mouth on the floor, having demons cast out. Somebody else was healed. That pastor paid those people after the service, and we saw it. And that kind of stuff goes on all over. And it's just fake. And it, it's not that God doesn't heal people. He can heal people. But healing was not for the believer. It was a sign to the unbeliever. And it was a fulfillment of Messianic prophecies saying these people are from me. They represent me. And it validated that they were true teachers of God's Word. And they went into the temple filled with wonder and amazement. And notice it says at the end of verse 12, Solomon's portico. Now that's mentioned over in Acts 5. We're going to get to it where it talks about it. But it's also mentioned back in John 10. And it's interesting because it, the customary that Jesus would go there and teach in Solomon's portico. And notice what he's teaching on 
in John 10. It's the passage on the shepherd where he says, I'm the good shepherd. Flip back over there real quick and just follow that with me for a second. I'm sorry. John 10. John 10, 22. And Jesus is teaching here. And it says, At the time of the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. That's the same place. That's Solomon's portico. So the Jews gathered around Him and said to Him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you don't believe. The works, miracles, the signs that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you're not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Here's the thing. Seekers will always see the signs. Skeptics always want more signs. And the signs, you don't have to see somebody healed to be able to grasp today The Holy Spirit can give you understanding, but back then, they did not have the New Testament letters. They didn't have the Gospel accounts. They had people saying we represent God, and the only way God would validate them then was by miracles. The same miracles Jesus did. This was done. Jesus healed a guy who'd been lame 38 years, and now Peter's healing a guy who's been lame 40 years. You think that's coincidence? The guy hadn't been lame because of an accident. He was born lame. A creative miracle. And he validated his messengers through signs and miracles. Today, it's God's Word. The same people who talk about having the gift of healing today have the worst theology. If you really stop and dissect what they teach and go to God's Word, you will see them take extraordinary measures to make their theology fit into Scripture. Instead of contextually, it doesn't work. They take things out of context. And that's how you know it's not from God. Because God has given us His Word in context to tell us what? About Messiah. It's not about glorifying the Holy Spirit. It's not about glorifying me. It's not about me getting money. It's about pointing people to Messiah. What is the ultimate aim of what people are doing? Doug, it reminds me of what H.B. taught us at the retreat from Matthew 7, 7, where he said, Seek and you will find. Mm-hmm. You'll find what you seek. You will. You will. And does that mean God doesn't heal? No, He heals people today. Amen. He does. I believe He heals people today. I, can God speak in a foreign language through somebody who's never trained? Absolutely. I believe he can do that today. But the normative experience for God's people in the church today is not to use healing in the same way these apostles did. You see it start to fade throughout the New Testament. In fact, there's no teaching about teaching healing in the New Testament. It says in James... Uh, if, if someone's sick, as elders lay hands on them and anoint them with oil. So you see a lot of people anoint an oil in obedience to that. But what did oil represent to the people then? 
It was always God's presence, right? It went, that's why they anointed kings, they anointed priests, they anointed uh, prophets, because the oil symbolized that God was there. So when an elder, a leader of the church, would put the oil on a person and then tell them, listen, if you've got sin in your life, confess it now. If you go back and look at that context, those people were dealing more with the spiritual healing that went on inside that person's heart than the physical healing of a body. But we take that today and we use it for physical healing. But physical healing of miracles was not for believers as a general rule. That didn't mean that God didn't do it. A guy asked this morning, well, what about in the Gospels when you know, Jesus says, because of your faith? Well, yeah. What was their faith in? They believed, they called him Son of David. That was a messianic title. They recognized that he was Messiah. Jesus, when he said, I haven't seen this kind of faith in all Israel, of course, I'm going to heal this guy. You know what I'm saying? Because he was so taken back that, that, a, that a Gentile Roman centurion would say, Hey, you don't even have to come. Just say it and it'll happen. Wow. Okay, I'm going to do that. That's done. That's easy. With the apostles, they represented Him. They had a mission. So when they went out and healed, it was to validate that they were from Messiah and that they were teaching from Messiah. So their words were validated as being authentic from God. So I don't know if that is helpful for you. It's helpful for me because I think a lot of times we get pulled into, we want people to be healed and we claim stuff that God never meant to be claimed for that. I I had a guy tell me just the other day, I'm just claiming, and he claimed a verse that had nothing to do with healing and praying for healing of somebody. It It had to do with Israel. Actually, Israel was under judgment and it had to be with them coming back. But that's what he was holding on to. And, and you know, is that important? I think it is because I think Scripture's important. I think it's important to know it in context. And I think we're so biblically illiterate today that people can pretty much say what they want. So you have all these people saying, and I've got a lot of friends who believe some of this wild healing stuff. They believe it and they don't question it because they've been told it so many times and they don't know the Word. I hope that's helpful for you in seeing the connection to how a disciple emulates his master and what God did with it. That's powerful to me that he took Peter and did the same thing he did back in John chapter 5 to validate to validate uh, who these men were. Yeah, I just, I, I just wanted to comment that I found it very convicting uh, that it's not our job to feed the people just to bring the fish. That's powerful to me. Uh, you know, we're all uh, afraid of rejection or ridicule if we go out and disciple the wrong people and, uh, you know, they turn us away or ridicule us. But all we got to do is uh, <coughs> bring the fish. Mm-hmm. And isn't it interesting? He said, I don't have silver and gold. Yeah. That's what impacted me the most.
Yeah. He just, but it says, I'll give you what I have. Yeah, I give you what I got. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. I think we tend in our cultures to think, well, I'm not seminary trained. I'm not this. I'm not that. God's given us all we need for life and godliness. Well, through the power of Him who called us. Mm-hmm. It's His. It's Him. He's given Him Jesus Christ, is what He's given. The biggest miracle in anybody's life is that God would redeem their sin nature from death to life. That's a supernatural miracle for that person to be baptized in the Spirit. All you have to do is say yes to God. Say yes to Him. And and be His messenger of Messiah because people desperately need to hear about Messiah. Brad, will you close our time in prayer?